Mark 12, 13 to 17. Hear then the word of the Lord. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to, to him, to Jesus, to trap him by what he said. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not pay? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought one. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said. Then Jesus told them, Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Father, it is impossible for us to grasp the meaning of this passage in a way that would bear fruit in our lives apart from your Holy Spirit's power, apart from the wonder-working power of the blood of the Lamb applied to us today in the hearing of your word. We will not have a deep spirit-produced faith or trust that would bear fruit, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so, Father, we are asking for you to do what only you can do. It is impossible for us to do. It's impossible for us to bear fruit in grasping the meaning of this passage in a way that changes our lives. We could understand this intellectually, Father, but not in a way that's transforming unless your spirit comes. And so help us to encounter Jesus and to receive him and to enjoy him and to love him still, love him deeper and know him more as we listen carefully to what he's teaching us here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God and government. God and government. Are you excited about the elections this November? This Sunday has more developments from last Sunday, so perhaps you're more excited. Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, or Bernie Sanders. He's still in the race. Some of you are excited. Others of you are deflated and discouraged. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. <laughs> Just a quick word on mothers. Um, I know some of them, some of our members or attenders at this church, as I'm getting to know um, different ones more and more, Mother's Day can be a painful time for some mothers, and actually that's why they don't go to church on, on a Sunday. Um, not all of you have had pleasant experiences with your mom or even as a mom, and so as a church family, we want to sympathize with your pain. And as you share that burden with us, we know that um, mother, motherhood has ups and downs. And for, for some, there's more downs than ups. And so um, if that's where you're at, we definitely want to, to, to pray with you and to, to bear that burden with you and let you know that we love you and that, and that God loves you. And not just in a sentimentalist type of way, but in a very actual, tangible way. Others of you have had pleasant experiences that are filled with gratitude. And some of you had pleasant experiences, but it's still painful because your mothers aren't here. One of our church members um, said, you know, this is just missing his mom this Mother's Day as she's in heaven. And so that's also, this day can be painful for many as well. For young children, just again, this, the sermon's not on mothers, as you can tell from the text. But for young children to have pleasant experiences with their mother, they need to, have, they need to experience love from their mom 
but also authority. Love with authority, right? Especially young children. If there's no love, then all there is is pain. If there's no authority, then there's no understanding of structure or there's no way to comprehend what love actually is because kids will misinterpret love when they can do whatever they want with no discipline or correction or authority. As those under authority, the best way to profit from authority, children, is to submit to the authority of your parents and of, to your mom with gladness, especially when you're living in their home. Now, this text doesn't have to do with mothers, but it has to do with authority. And it has to do with submission to authority. See, as, as those under authority, children are not the only ones under authority this morning. We are all under authority. And because we're under authority, the best way to benefit from authority is to submit to it willingly and even, I dare say, enthusiastically with understanding and support. I think that's what this text is getting at broadly. And so let me give you the main idea of this passage, and it's going to be broader than the actual specifics of this passage. The main idea is this. Be a subject who submits to authority. Okay, or there you have it there in your notes. Subject and submit yourself properly to the proper authority. Subject yourself and submit yourself properly to the proper authority. Now, let's recap the story here in Mark chapter 12. Remember in Mark chapter 11, Jesus had the triumphal entry on a Sunday. He rode into Jerusalem with great crowds and great fanfare and noise and celebration. He left the temple that day. The next day on Monday, he comes and he cleanses the temple. He, remember that there's a fruit tree and he curses the fig tree. He goes into the temple. He cleanses the temple. He says, my father's house shall be a house of prayer, but you made it a house or a den or a cave of thieves. And so he kicked them all out and would not let anyone pass by on that Monday. The next day, Tuesday, he goes back to the temple. He points to the leafy fig tree that had no figs and said, just like the fig tree looks like it has fruit, but does it? So is the temple and the religious leadership. And so he goes back to cleanse the temple and hold the temple down again on Tuesday. Now, this Tuesday, um, we've been on for the past three weeks, and we're actually going to be on Tuesday. It goes all the way from chapter 12 to chapter 13, all the way in to the beginning of chapter 14. It's all Tuesday. So we're going to be in Tuesday for a little bit here, okay? And so last week, we talked about Jesus telling the parable of the leaders who would reject the, corner, the stone that becomes the chief cornerstone. And he was saying, you religious leaders are rejecting me even though I'm the son of God. And so we talked about that last week. And now they're still at the temple. They're still trying to discredit Jesus. Remember, one of the questions was, is John's baptism from heaven or from men? We talked about that a few weeks ago. And now here's the, here's the next trick question. They want to get Jesus out of the temple because he's cleansing the temple and he's confronting and correcting and rebuking their sin as religious leaders. So here's their next trick question. It's in verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not pay? This is a trick question because either way Jesus answers the question. It's a yes or no question, right? Should we pay or should we not pay? There's only yes or no. If you say yes, you lose, Jesus. And if you say no, you lose. So they got Jesus trapped. There's no way out. If he says yes, yes, pay taxes to Caesar. You know what they're going to say? This tax that you want us to pay to Caesar, that means you're supporting the Roman government and you're against the Bible. There's no God but God. 
There are no other gods, and Israel is, to, is, is the nation of God. So how dare you tell us to pay taxes to a governorship and an empire that's oppressing us? More so, on the actual coin, it has the image of Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, and it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. That's blasphemous for the Jew, right? So you're saying that, that Caesar Augustus, the previous Caesar, who's dead now, is now, um, you know, he's, he's div- divinitized. Now he's a, he's a divine being. He's, he's a god now. And Caesar Tiberius is the son of Caesar Augustus. And so he's the son of a divine person. He's the son of God. As the emperor, he's the son of God, of a god. That's on one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin, it says Pontifex, Mac- Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. And of course, for Jews, they have their own high priest. So the fact that the Romans are oppressing the Jews, the fact that the Jews are supposed to be the nation of God and free because of the Exodus redemption, and because of the fact that on this coin, there's a blasphemous statement and image on it claiming deity and divinity and high priesthood, the Jews hated this tax. And if you support this tax, you're an enemy of the Jews. So Jesus can't say yes unless he risks alienating the Jews that he's trying to endear in some ways. So he can't say yes. Well, what if he says no? No, don't pay taxes. It's blasphemous. Then what are they going to say? Who are they going to go to? They'll go to the Roman authorities and say, this man who draws crowds of hundreds or thousands is leading people to stop paying taxes to you. And now he's a rebel, and now they're going to arrest him or kill him. So either way, the religious leaders, the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, they win, and Jesus loses, right? That's, that's the point. It's a trick question, and they have him here trapped. They thought they had him for sure. But Jesus, as usual, wins the debate, right? And avoids the trap. He says, give me a coin. Let me see what's on it. So they give him a coin, flip him the coin, catches the coin. Whose image is on this? Caesar. So he says, okay, then give to Caesar, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give back to God what is God's. And even the enemies of Jesus were amazed at Jesus. Finally, they're amazed, right? He raises the dead. They're not amazed. They're, they're angry. He answers their trick question. They're like, whoa, this guy is amazing. Not enough to save them, not enough to repent, but at least enough to amaze them. And so from this story, we learn three things about subjecting and submitting ourselves properly to the proper authority. Okay, three things. Number one, and there's the blanks in your notes if you want to fill in the notes. Number one, submit to Jesus as cleanser submit to jesus as the cleanser why do i say submit to jesus as the cleanser well what is jesus doing in the temple it was a house of it was they made it a cave of thieves he kicks them out and calls it a house of what prayer so what is he doing he's cleansing the temple he's correcting the people he's rebuking the jewish leaders he's pointing back to the original the original design of the temple which is a house of prayer So as he confronts and corrects, he is cleansing the temple and warning them about rejecting him, and he's calling them to trust in him. That's what he's doing. He's confronting their sin. He's confronting their hypocrisy, and he's calling them to to be cleansed. 
Is that a good thing to be clean before God? Yes or no? It's a good thing, right? So we ought to submit to Jesus as the one who cleanses us. Now, listen to their word about Jesus. Look at verse 14. Look at how they describe Jesus here. When they came, they said to Jesus, teacher, we know that you are what? Jesus, you are what? True or truthful. You're true. And you what? Care about no one. Now, that sounds weird at first, like Jesus doesn't care about you. What that means is, I'll read you my translation, you defer to no one and you don't show partiality. In other words, you don't make your, you don't give your answer based on people's faces. You don't look at them and like, oh, that person's going to be mad at me, so I'm not going to say what I would have said. No, he's truthful. He's not a people pleaser, not that he doesn't love people, but he's not dictated by the approval of others. And when you're not dictated by the approval of others, you're free to tell the truth. The only reason you hold back and pull punches in your statements is because you're judging their faces. You're, you're deferring to them. You're intimidated, perhaps, by them, or you're desiring their approval, perhaps more. Now, now it could be appropriate sometimes, but you're, approve, you're desiring their approval more than you ought to, more than God's. And that's why you don't say what you ought to say, perhaps. Jesus never did that. Whenever Jesus spoke, you knew he was telling you he was real. He was telling you like it is, not in a way that's rude or obnoxious, like some might be doing in the public square today, but in a way that's just genuine, honest, loving, but still without any fear of what others... He had pure love for people. He had a pure fear for God. So he didn't have to worry about your reaction. He could just tell you what it is. And they knew that. That, if, if you were chasing Jesus around for three years and he was your enemy and you're studying your enemy and you're trying to get to know him and how to dismantle him, you start to get to know your enemy a little bit better, right? You're thinking about them all the time, their strengths, their weaknesses. And so one of the strengths of Jesus is that no matter what, whenever you talk to him, he would never, he would never be wishy-washy. He'd never polish his answer a little bit. He would just tell you the truth in love, but he would tell you the truth like it is. And they knew that. Now, when you have someone who's like that, like Jesus, does that sound like an enemy or an ally? Is that someone you'd like to get to be your ally or your enemy? Well, I said it's like Jesus, so you, you know the right answer is ally, right? But you're like, oh, I don't know if I want an ally because that, that could hurt sometimes, right? Proverbs 27, 6 says this. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Flattery comes from enemies. Wounds come from friends, and they're trustworthy. Galatians 4.16, Paul asks this question to the Galatians. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Does that make me your enemy because I told you the truth? The obvious answer is no, I'm not your enemy. Proverbs 28, 23, one who rebukes a person will later find more favor than one who flatters with his tongue. If Jesus is true, if Jesus never plays favorites, shouldn't they listen to him? Yes or no? Yes. Shouldn't we listen to him? Yeah. So here's their problem. And I don't want to spend too much more time on point one. We need to move on. But here's the point. Do not hypocritically test the one who's correcting you in truth by a distracting question that avoids the real issue. That's what they're doing, right? 
They're being convicted. Jesus is correcting them. He's rebuking them. He's cleansing them. And they don't want it. So what do they have? A hypocritical test to distract from the real issue. This is a house of prayer. You are the leaders of the Jews, supposed to lead them to the Lord Yahweh. Following the law covenant. That's your job. That's the main issue. Yet for them, they want to talk about Caesar and taxes. They want to distract from the main issue because they're hypocritically testing him. And that's what we do when someone who loves us is correcting us. Whether it's the Bible or whether it's a fellow church member or a family member who loves us and tells us the truth. We will take other questions and other issues to deflect the real issue. And Jesus sees right through it. Why are you hypocritically testing me? Throw me a coin. So this is the main point of really this whole Tuesday, okay? Because we are on Tuesday here. We're going to talk about God and government in a second. But right now, the point is this. The main point of this whole Tuesday, this passage in its context is, do not reject Jesus by discrediting him when you use your, using your religion as an excuse. In other words, don't discredit or reject Jesus because you want to protect your own power, your own place, your own position, your own comforts. Even Christians, even we can be guilty of this, right? Where we reject or discredit a Bible verse or a certain biblical truth that hurts just a little too much on the heart, right? It's a little too convicting. So we want to discredit it lest it get too convicting and it actually makes us change. So be subject, be a subject who submits to the authority of Jesus the King. Now Jesus might be implying in his answer here um, that the government are... Jesus might be implying in his answer about the government here that Israel's fundamental problem is not Rome. When he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's, he might be showing them, your problem is not the government. Your problem is not taxes. Your problem is your own sin and not giving God his due. And so your fundamental need is, guess what? It's the very beginning of Mark. Mark 1, go back to Mark 1. What's the fundamental need? It's not whether you pay taxes or not. Your main problem, Jews, your main problem, religious leaders, your main problem, Christians, is not the government. It's not taxes. The human's main problem, the Jews' main problem, is in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. What do we need to do? Repent and believe in the good news. Look at Mark 1.4. John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flocking to him, verse 5, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. That's our problem. Our problem is not on the outside. It's not the government. It's not our friends. It's not our family. It's not our church. It's not other people. Our problem is not on the outside. Our problem is on the inside. It's us. That's the main problem. And as Albert Moeller says, the world says... The problem is on the outside and the solution is on the inside. Look within. When the Bible teaches that the problem is actually on the inside and the problem's on the outside, Jesus. You're not the solution to your problem. Jesus is. So if you're not a Christian, understand your fundamental problem is not the government or your church or your family or your job or your school or your parents or your children. Your problem is your rebellion and your rejection of Jesus. You're saying, well, I don't rebel against Jesus. 
Well, then your problem is marginalizing Jesus, sidelining Jesus, ignoring Jesus. You're saying, I never ignored Jesus. I never thought about him. That's what ignoring is, right? <laughs> ignoring Jesus is not thinking about him. And so that is a sin. And because of that sin, we all deserve hell. That's what the Bible teaches. But here's the good news. The good news is God sent Jesus to cleanse us from our sins. Not only by correcting and rebuking us, but by dying on the cross for us. He was treated as unclean on the cross so that he might cleanse us and we could be accepted as clean. Jesus died for our sins on a Friday. He rose from the dead on the third day, that Sunday. So entrust yourself to Jesus. Repent from your sins. And like these Jewish leaders, repent from your religion and trust in Jesus Christ. If you do, Jesus will forgive you of your sins. He'll give you eternal life. He'll give you freedom from sin as he gives you his Holy Spirit who will live in you and begin to transform you. Trust in Jesus today and turn from your sins. Give your life to him. If you're a Christian, what should we do? We need to welcome and invite correction. We talked about this last week, so I won't belabor it this week, but we need to welcome and invite correction. Pride is our greatest enemy, not our loved ones who speak the truth to us in love. Pride comes before a what? Fall. God, ex- God, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pursue humility by submitting to Jesus and letting him cleanse you. When people convict you, thank them for it and ask them for more. You know, I had a friend in, the, in our association who sent me a message um, asking me a question and convicting me of my sin. And in my email, I said, hey, brother, thank you for putting that knife in my heart. Um, I invite you to keep twisting it. You know, keep twisting the knife. Don't, don't stop because I need it and we need it. And that's what Jesus is telling us here. So that's number one, submit to Jesus as cleanser. Number two, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So here's number two. This is all from verse 17. Submit to the government as ruler. Okay? Submit to Jesus as cleanser. Point number two, submit to the government as ruler. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What's on that coin? The image of Caesar. Therefore, give that to Caesar. That's his. What Give back to Caesar what belongs to him. So what's the, what's the command in verse 17? What's the word? Give me the word that Jesus uses. The action word. Give, right? That's the command. Give. So give to the government what you owe the government. And what do you owe the government, at least from this passage? You owe them your what? Your taxes. So pay your taxes. There's four things you need to give to the government. I'm giving you one right now, the first one in this passage. We'll go to other passages for other ones. Give to the government four things that belong to the government from us as Christians. Number one, our taxes. Romans 13, 6 and 7 says this. Romans 13, 6 and 7. And for this reason, you pay taxes since the authorities are God's public servants continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. So give your taxes to the government. You might say, well, PJ, don't you know that they use some of our tax money to support abortions, the killing of babies? I get that. Is that righteous? No. Is that sinful? Yes. Will God judge? Yes. Is that a good reason to not pay taxes? No. I mean, look at their coin. Their emperor's being called the son of God, right? I mean, there was emperor worship in their day. 
I'm not saying that um, that abortion is not a big deal. It's a very, very big deal. It's maybe one of our biggest moral deals in America. And yet the Roman Empire was also corrupt. And yet Jesus, without flinching, says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. If, if your dollar bills say United States Treasury on it, then give it back to the United States. You're living here in this country. Don't cheat your taxes. Don't lie. When you do that, you don't only disobey the government, you disobey Christ, right? That's what he's saying here. You can't evade taxes and not and evade God at the same time. And even worse, do not use God as an excuse to not pay taxes. That's even worse. You know, especially when the Bible's so clear that we need to do it. Okay, so that's the first thing, obviously, right here, pay your taxes. Three other things to give to the government. Um, I'll read, I'll, continuing in Romans 13, it says this. Um, pay taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. So here's the second thing you need to give to the government. Your honor, your respect, and your obedience. Your honor, your respect, and your obedience. Romans 13.1 says, Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no, accept, no authority except from God. And those that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. In Titus 3.1 and 2, it says this, Remind them, Titus, remind those in the churches to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to presidents and governors and mayors and police officers, to obey to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. We owe the government our obedience, our honor, and our respect, even if it's the one you didn't vote for. That's what we owe. Number three, third thing to, to, to give to the government. Four things to give. Third thing to give is your prayers and thanksgiving. Your prayers and thanksgivings. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, First of all, then I urge you that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and it pleases God our Savior. So prayers, petitions, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for kings and all those in authority. Paul is saying that to a Roman emperor who is persecuting the church. He's, they're persecuting the church at times in different ways. They're, they're having emperor worship and he's saying, thank God for your emperor. So thank God for your president and your Supreme Court justices and, and the, the legislative branch and your state government. That's what it says. Thanksgivings. That's what the text says. That doesn't mean they're right. Right? The emperor was asking people to worship him. That's wrong. And yet Paul says, thank God for them. I remember Brother Al would constantly pray, God, thank you that we're born in this time and born living in this country. And he would pray that with all his heart. And that was instructing me as a young American and as a young Christian to be thankful no matter what. Number four, fourth thing to give to your, that the fourth thing you owe is love. Mark twelve thirty one: love your neighbors as you love yourself, Right? Titus 3.2 said, always show gentleness to all people. So love them. Even be willing to suffer. You owe your government your love. That doesn't mean you support them in everything. We have freedom of speech. Praise God. We have the right to vote. Let's vote. 
but you owe your neighbors your love. So I have a wrong idea here. There's, there's five wrong ideas here of, of wrong ideas of how to relate to government, okay? Oh, to recap the four things to give, give your taxes, give your obedience, honor, respect, give your prayers and thanksgiving, and give your love, okay? Here are, how, how should we relate to government? Some people say anarchy is the right answer. The government is evil. Now, that is partially true. Actually, all of us have sin in our hearts, but there are a lot of non-Christians who don't have any of God in them, any fear of God in them. And so some people say the government is evil, so the best thing Christians should do is just be anarchists. The Anabaptists in church history thought that way. A lot of them did, at least, to be anarchists and, and just just de- detach yourself from the state. That's not a good answer, because Romans 13 says that it's given to us for our good. There's only one thing worse than an evil regime. That's no regime. There's only one thing worse than a corrupt government. That's no government. Because then it literally becomes a free-for-all. And whoever has the most guns wins. Okay, so that's number two, is submit to government as the authority. Let's go to the back page here in your notes, if you're following along in your notes. And let's go, to, uh, go back to Mark chapter 12, verse 17. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to who? And give to God, give back to God, the things that are God's. So here's number three. Submit to God as creator and supreme ruler. Okay, or as creator and king, if you like. Give, submit to God as creator and king. And that's what it says here. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God's. Okay, so look up here for a second. I need you to, to make the connection here. I want you to see this insight. How did you know what is Caesar's? How did Jesus prove what is Caesar's? It had, what, what did the coin have on it? His image. That's how you know what is Caesar's because it has his image on it. How do you know what is God's? Same answer. How do you know what is God's? His image. Where is his image? Where is his image? On who? On man. Humanity. Not just Christians. All humanity, right? Genesis 1, 26. Let us, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth. And then he created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. We are made as humans, men and women, male and female are made in the image of God. And to be made in the image of God means that we are to reflect God. And how do we reflect God? Give you three R's just briefly. How do we reflect God? By reproduction, be fruitful, multiply. By reproducing, happy Mother's Day, right? Reproducing, that's, that's what mothers are. They reproduce. That's how you reflect the image of God, by reproducing, by ruling. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over everything that crawls. Rule and, and set up a house, set up a job, set up institutions, work. That's all ruling over creation. So you reflect God by ruling, by reproducing, and by resting. On the seventh day, God rested. And when we rest the way God rested with recreation and relaxation, we reflect God. So what does Caesar own? Coins. So what do you give to Caesar? The coins. What does God own? Man, he owns you. So what should you give God? Yourself. Okay? So that's letter A here. Give God yourself. Give yourself. 
Give yourself. Mark 12.30 tells us how to give ourselves. What's Mark 12.30? They asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Here's the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. With all of it. You don't give God half of who you are. You don't give God 97% of who you are. You don't give God a tenth, a tithe of who you are. You give God all that you are. Because you are made in the image of God. And you give back to God what is God's. You are God's. God owns you. That's why we say submit to God as creator. Because he created you in his image. And therefore you owe him. Christian or non-Christian, you owe the true God yourself. Your allegiance. You are obligated You are obligated to this God. And so you have to give yourself to God as your creator and even as your king. And if God is the king that we give ourselves to wholly and we're only giving the government our money in this passage, then who's more supreme, God or government? God is, right? God rules over all, including government. This means that when government... And God conflict in a command. Who are we to obey? Are you sure? You don't sound that that sure. Who are we to obey? God, God right? Acts 4.19, Peter and John answered the Pharisees, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you and stop preaching the gospel rather than God, you decide. Acts 5.29, but Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men or man. So we will choose God over men because God is king and God is our creator. And we give him, we give the government what they, what they are owed taxes, love and obedience and prayers and thanksgiving. But we give God, we give to God everything we are. And so when there's a conflict, of course, our allegiance is ultimately to God. Part of giving yourself to God with all that you are is loving your neighbor as yourself. Cause that's the first commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbor as your self. So one of the ways you love your government and one of the ways you actually love God is by loving your neighbors, including your government. When you participate in this American government, is that a way of blessing your neighbors? Yes or no? Is that a way of loving your neighbors? I mean, if you vote for the right person, if you campaign for the right, if you vote for the right bill or vote against the wrong bill, or isn't that a way of loving your neighbor? Don't those things have an effect on our neighbors? It does, right? And so you participate in government as a citizen of the United States as an act of love for your neighbor because of your love for who? For God. Because you've given yourself to God. This will mean, as someone who's given yourself to God, that you will try to persuade others in our country, you'll try to persuade our neighbors because you love them, of what is right and what is wrong, what is wise and what is unwise, what is moral And what is immoral? And you'll try to persuade them of what God says will lead to human flourishing. You remember Ephesians 6, 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first command with promise, that it may go well with you and you might live long in the what? On the earth or the land? What is that saying? That when you obey God, you are generally blessed with a long what? Long life. It's human flourishing. When a government and a culture, when America obeys God, are we better off for it? Even if they don't become Christian, at least on earth, aren't they better off for it? Yes. And when we disobey God, doesn't sin have consequences? Isn't there a thorn in every sin? A hidden razor in every candy of, of sin? Yes. And will our government and our, 
Our neighbors pay for that? Yes, they can't avoid the consequences. We can't avoid the consequences. And so we need to do all that we can to love God supremely, which means in part loving our neighbors and participating in government. Here's what Article 13 of our Statement of Faith says on stewardship. God is the source of all blessings, temporal and spiritual. All that we have and are, we owe to him. Christians have a spiritual debtorship to the whole world, a holy trusteeship in the gospel, and a binding stewardship in their possessions. They are therefore under obligation to serve him with their time, talents, and material possessions, and should recognize all these as entrusted to them to use for the glory of God and for helping others. All of your money, not, not a tenth, all of your money is to be used for God's glory and for the good of others. All of your time, not, not just your Sundays, all of your time, is to be used for the glory of God and the good of others. All of your relationships, all of your material possessions, all of your talents, all of your gifts are to be used for the glory of God and for helping others, for loving your neighbors. Now what that means is, so, so, so that, that's how we relate to the culture. Loving God supremely and then loving our neighbors secondarily as a reflection of our love for God. Okay, so if anarchy is not the right way to re- relate to government, let me give you two more wrong ideas. Secularism. What is secularism? Secularism is the idea that we should exclude religion from the state public square. So from public discussion, we should not bring in religion. Do you know, have you heard of secularism? It's basically, let's keep God out of certain discussions. God and religion have no bearing on certain discussions or decisions. Is that right or is that wrong? Hmm. Well, if you're not a Christian, you might say, of course that's right. Christians are always trying, if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, Christians are always trying to shove their religion down our throats. There are so many perspectives in so many religions. They are so arrogant. Christians are so arrogant to think that they have the one right religion and that everyone else is wrong. And not only wrong, they're going to hell. That causes violence in our world. And it's actually a threat to world peace. You might be thinking that if you're not a Christian. Well, as a Christian, let me give you a brief response to this, this, this view. So if you're saying we need to be inclusive and not privilege one religion over the others, when you try to be inclusive of all religions, that is really undercover exclusivity. Because you're, if you say no one has the right way, no one should say they have the right way, Guess what you've just done with that statement? You've declared what the right way is. The right way is that no one should have the what? The right way. So everyone's wrong except who? Except you. If you say every religion is equally valid, you could only say that if one, you believe that God doesn't exist, or two, that God doesn't care, or that gods don't care, the gods don't care. And if that's what you believe, then guess what you're privileging? Whose view of God are you privileging? Your view of God over other people's view of God. In other words, there is no real inclusivism. To say you're inclusive of everyone, that everyone is right, is to say that no one is right except you. Everyone who says that they're right is wrong. That's what you're saying. So why would you exclude the Christian view or the Islamic view or the Hindu view? At best, it's inconsistent. At worst, it's hypocritical. To say all religions are equally valid is itself a European Enlightenment idea of knowledge and values. Why is it that that why is it that the right way of um, 
of thinking is to declare that others are wrong except yourself. That doesn't make sense. So secularism, so some people might say, okay, how should Christians relate? Christians should keep all of their religion to their churches and to their homes. It's no longer the freedom of religion. It's the freedom of, have you heard this in our cultural discussion today? You'll hear from politicians. It's not the freedom of religion. Anyone know what it is? The freedom of what? Worship. Have you heard that? They're sliding the discussion from the freedom of religion to the freedom of worship. You should be free to say whatever you want in your church. Free to say whatever you want in your home. You are not free to say that online. You're not free to say it in the public square. Some of the leaders today are calling for freedom of worship. And it sounds the same, but it's not. It's tricky. That's secularism. Keep your God and your religious views out of this discussion and out of these decisions. Secular, secularism pretends to be neutral and say, no view of God should be privileged, but guess what? Secularism itself is a view of God. Secularism is saying no religion should be privileged except our religion. Now I know secularists will get offended and say, what? We're not religious. Yeah, you might not be religious in the technical sense, but you do have your own set of beliefs, and your set of beliefs gets to dominate the, the cultural discussion, and our sets of beliefs are ruled out of order just by virtue of your declaration. That's not fair. That's not right. And the freedom of religion and the freedom of speech means that we have a right, actually, to exercise a religion publicly. Now, that doesn't... Okay, well, I'm going to get to the second part here, but let me tell you a few things wrong with secularism. It doesn't distinguish the laws from the content, the reasons for the law. So why, why have a law or why not have a law? There are reasons behind it. They're either secular or religious, but there are reasons behind it. When we say we have the right as religious people to exercise our religion, we're not saying that everyone has to agree with us. We're just saying that everyone gets the right to exercise their religion or even their secularism. It's not, we're not establishing a, 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 we're not establish, establishing a, a religion when we say we have the right to speak and vote from a religious conviction. Plus, if the will of the people wanted to vote a certain way, they have the right to. This, this confuses the idea of freedom of religion with freedom from religion. Okay, we don't believe in freedom from religion in our country. We believe in freedom of religion. So secularism was never officially adopted by the American people. It just practically has been. Okay, there's a third wrong idea here. Look at wrong idea number three, religious imperialism. This is the opposite. Now, if you're a non-Christian, you might say, whoa, PJ, you're saying that you guys could bring your biblical arguments into the public square. I'm saying yes. And so now you're saying, PJ, you believe in religious imperialism then. You want to compel us and force religion on us by the state. You want to pass laws that force us to be Christian. You want to, you want to pass laws that force your religion onto all of us, you Christians. I understand that fear. Let me tell you why the Bible doesn't teach that we should use the state to push our religious gospel, our, our, our evangelism and our mission. Jesus distinguishes the realm of Caesar from the realm of God in this passage, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Secondly, as Christians, we don't believe we can coerce faith, right? We can't pass a law that says everyone needs to be a Christian because would that make everyone a Christian? How do you become a Christian? By repenting from your sins and faith. By faith in Jesus, by trusting in Christ and turning from your sins. Can we pass a law that forces everyone to do that? No, that is not biblical Christianity. We can't put a sword to someone's neck and force them to vote. 
a certain way or to, to do a certain thing. We're just arguing for freedom of religion. Jesus did not set up an earthly kingdom. At this point, he will. Plus, if we, if we said that the state has to force our religion on other people, that would destroy freedom of religion. And so that would actually, in the end, hurt the church. Because whenever the church and the government get married, the church always loses in the end. So, what do we do then? Not only are we to give ourselves, there's a second thing here, letter B. So we give ourselves because we're made in the image of who? God. God. But what else? Or here's a trick question. Who else are we supposed to give to God? Turn to Romans 15, 16. Romans 15, 16 in your Bible. This is the last major passage I'm going to have you turn to. Last passage, actually, I'm going to have you turn to. I might quote one more, but Romans 15, 16, last passage here. Romans 15, 16, Paul says, <coughs> to be a minister of, the, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of God's gospel, of God's good news. My purpose, Paul writes, is that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. The offering of the what? Gentiles. And it's offering. What is Paul offering? The what? The Gentiles. To who? To God. What is Paul? Let me change the question. What is Paul giving to God? The what? The Gentiles. Paul is giving to God the Gentiles. How is he doing it? In verse 18, he says he's making the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. In verse 20, he's saying he's evangelizing them. When he shares the gospel with them and he brings them into repentance and faith by converting them to Christ and they get baptized and follow Christ in the ways of Christ, <coughs> what is Paul giving to God? The converts. So if we are to give to God what is God's, we're not just giving ourselves. Who else are we giving? Those we share the gospel with. You are to, if you are going to give to God what is God's, you're not just giving yourself. You give others to God. Again, not by, not by sword, not by force, but by love. You lay down your life in love for your neighbors. You, you lay down your life in love for your nation. You lay down your life in love for the ethnic people groups of the world. So that as they hear the gospel and see your love for Christ, they will turn from their sins and trust in Jesus and they become an offering from you to God. We give the, the nations, the Gentiles, to God as an offering. Give back to God what is God's. Are the nations God's? Does God own all the nations? Does God own all the Gentiles? Does God all own all the Jews? Yes. And so we are giving back to God. We are reclaiming for God what is rightfully God's. And we do that through our ministry as a church and through our ministry, our personal ministry as Christians. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and up before the Lamb. They were robed in white and with palm branches in their hand. God will save people from every ethnic people group. And he will save them through you when you give them to God in your ministry of missions, discipleship, and evangelism. That's how we give back to God what is God's. So two more wrong answers, wrong ideas. One is politicism. The other one is spiritualism. Spiritualism, I'll go with wrong idea five first. Some people say, okay, you know what we need to do? Forget the government. All we should do is share the gospel. True or false? All we should do is share the gospel. False. False. Should we share the gospel? 
Is that our main mission? Yes. Is that our only mission? Or is that the only part of the mission? No. That's too narrow. We are to obey all that Christ commanded. We are to teach the whole counsel of God. All of the Bible should be preached and taught and applied, not just the gospel message. God designed the church and the government to restrain evil. The government does have a role. Christians have influenced governments positively throughout the